We're going to begin this morning in Proverbs 6, and then we'll move over to chapter 26. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Let's flip over to chapter 26, and there I'll begin the reading in verse 12. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, there's a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. The book of Proverbs has much to say about the sluggard. A sluggard is a lazy person. A person who has persisted in laziness to the point where he despises work and does what he can to avoid it. Here, in chapter 6 and in chapter 26, the sluggard is actually humiliated, in a sense, and told to go to a lowly insect to learn a lesson. He says, go to the ant, O sluggard. Go to the ant, O sluggard. I'm reminded of a video I saw a couple weeks ago about a group of entomologists, not entomologists, although that may be more appropriate in this case, a group of entomologists, scientists who study insects, went to Brazil and there they found a large abandoned anthill. And they came up with a bright idea of pouring cement into the anthill in order to allow what's underneath in the structure of the anthill, to be like a mold to form it into what they could study so they could see what the structure is. And so they began pouring and pouring and pouring. It took 10 tons of cement to fill that anthill, that, that anthill and the structure underneath it. They had to dig after a month. They waited a month for it to harden. After a month, they began digging, excavating, and they had to dig 26 feet deep to get to the bottom of the structure. And they had to uncover an area of 540 square feet. It was a huge excavation to see what was underneath. And what they found was this huge, complex, intricate, massive structure that kind of looked like a big space station. There, were a, there was a complicated network of subterranean highways, side roads, living chambers, working chambers, gardens, garbage dumps. It was an entire civilization underneath the ground. 
once they had it all uncovered, and they show you this on the video, the narrator of the video says this. He says, it looks like it was designed by an architect. But we know that this is not true. It was formed by the collective will of the ant colony. Well, of course, there was an architect ultimately behind this design and every design in the universe. But it is amazing what the hard work of the ant was able to accomplish and is daily able to accomplish, and we don't even notice it. The book of Proverbs says, learn wisdom from the ant. Look at how he works so diligently. Look at how he works so cooperatively. Look at how he doesn't even need, as it says, a chief or an officer or a ruler to tell him what to do. He just does it, and he does it faithfully, and he does it with great foresight for his future needs. Go to the ant. Learn from the ant. The writer of Proverbs is basically saying the ants reflect the glory of God in relation to work better than we do. Think about that. Better than we do. They are just genetically programmed insects. And yet they display the glory of God in work better than we do. We're made a little bit lower than the angels, as we heard earlier in the service. We're made in the image of God. What's wrong here? Why do we do such a poor job of representing the glory of God in our work? What's the problem with our work? Well, we need to go back to the beginning to understand what work was intended to be so that we can understand what's gone wrong with it. We have to go back to the Garden of Eden. And there we'll find the original intention and design for work as God intended it. What was work like before mankind sinned? What was it like? Well, if you open up your Bible, you go to the very first page and you begin to read what happened at the very beginning of history, there you meet God immediately. And the God that you meet is a God who works and works hard. He creates he provides for what he creates. He sustains what he creates. And the result, the, the, the product of that is this vast, beautiful, intricate, material universe that we marvel at. It's the work of his hands. And he had great joy and satisfaction in bringing it into existence. As Genesis 1 says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. What a moment of satisfaction that was for God. To see what he had made, the work that he had done, how good it was. Of course, the pinnacle of his creation is man. Man and woman, made in the image of God. And when he made them, he immediately gave them jobs. Genesis 1 says, So God created man in his own image, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here they are, man and woman, no training whatsoever, but he immediately gives them very important jobs. To be herdsmen, to be scientists, to be managers of this creation that he's brought into existence. In Genesis chapter 2, it goes on to say, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To work and keep the Garden of God. And so, 
added to the job description for man and woman is the job of farmer, even ecologist, to be good stewards of God's creation. They were made in the image of God, and what that means is that God gave them the great high privilege of imitating him, trying to be like him in the sense of being a creator like he is a creator, a provider like he's a provider, a sustainer like he's a sustainer. What a joy to be able to imitate God like that. One writer I came across this week said that work, as God originally intended it, was meant to be like God's big sandbox for his children. I used to have a sandbox when I was a kid, a big one in the backyard. That was my world. I created entire civilizations in that sandbox. I had my army men, I had my matchbox cars, I made roads, I made buildings, I made mountains. It was my creation. And I had complete control of it. And God really intends our work to be like that. It's like to, it's like, he wants it to be like a big sandbox for us to play in, to enjoy, to create, to be like him. But we know what Adam and Eve did. They rejected God as their creator. They rejected God as their provider. They rejected God as their Lord and sustainer. What happened after that sin? What became of work after the fall of man? Well, Genesis 3 puts it this way. It says, because you have eaten, the Lord says to his people, because you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Those are very sad, grievous words. The curse that our sin brought upon this universe means that the earth is broken. It means that the earth resists and frustrates our effort to work it and keep it. It means that when we do the work that we try to do, there's pain and suffering with that. And that even the good results that we're able to strain to produce from our labor is intermingled and interspersed with weeds and thorns and thistles. And we, meanwhile, sweat under the toil and the physical and emotional strains of our labor. Now, of course, this is all written in kind of agricultural terms. It's written to people that are used to working in farms and farming the land and caring for it. We're a little bit removed from that, I think. Uh, you know, in this culture, we've lost touch with what that lifestyle is like. So to translate it into modern non-agrarian terms, because of the curse, our work produces stress, conflict, Grumpy bosses, unreasonable overtime, tedious meetings, and bad coffee. <laughs> All things that frustrate our work, make it difficult, make it a burden. It's because of our sin. But don't ever lose sight of the fact that it is a basic, important worldview principle for you that work is good as God intends it. Work is a gift from God. It's meant to be something that we enjoy, 
something that's to be a great pleasure to us and a great opportunity and privilege for us to reflect his image and show his glory by trying to be like him. We all have a calling. It's unfortunate we tend to only apply that to those who go into quote-unquote ministry because we all are called to work. We're all given the gift and the privilege of working in the image of God. It's a vocation that we all have in all of its variety as God calls us in our different giftings and our circumstances. But work is corrupted by sin. We don't receive the joy and the satisfaction from it that we should. It's cursed. I mean, look at the labor of your hands. Think about it in so many ways in the past week, whether your work is as a student or whether your work is as a, as a lawyer or a doctor or a, a, a garbage man, whatever your work is, think about how many ways sin has made it hard and frustrating and difficult and unsatisfying. I don't know, household plumbing somehow got a double curse. I, anytime I jump into a plumbing job, it always takes five times longer than I intended and makes me twice as mad as it did in the past. I, it's just one of those jobs that God seems to make a point of showing us what the effect of sin is. But the, every job that we have is like that to one degree or another. Now, having said that, by God's grace, we do get little tastes of the joy and satisfaction of the Garden of Eden, don't we? We get little flashes of it, just enough to encourage us. But all those moments of grace are often lost in all the pain and the sweat and the frustration. And what happens is we develop what I would call a dangerous mindset. A sad reality is that we begin to see work as just a despised means to another end. That work becomes for us a means to get a paycheck. We work for the weekend. We work for status. We work for retirement. But we've lost the joy of work itself. Well, the dominant theme, as I've been sorting through all that the book of Proverbs has to say to us about our work, the dominant theme of the book of Proverbs is this. Be diligent in your work. Depending upon the Lord, be diligent in your work, and God will reward you. Be lazy in your work, and you'll end up poor in many different ways. That's really the message of Proverbs in a nutshell. Which brings us to this portrait, this uh, figure that the book of Proverbs refers to very often, the sluggard. We don't use the term sluggard in our everyday conversation anymore. I don't know when's the last time you used the word sluggard. But we know what it means. But we've replaced it with other terms like, I don't know, lazy bones, loafer, couch potato. We have a lot of different terms for it. And I wondered this week when I got to thinking about it, why don't we use sluggard? Well, I think it's because... You know, it's, I, I can handle saying, well, you know what, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a couch potato. Yeah I, yeah, I loaf sometimes, but I would never call myself a sluggard. Who would want to wear that label? But that's the label that the scriptures put on it. A sluggard. 
sluggard is a sinner who allows laziness to become a pattern of life. A sluggard is a person, a sinner, who, whose defining characteristic is laziness, despising work and seeking to avoid it. How long will you lie there, O sluggard, it says in chapter 6. How long? It's a pattern. And what's at the root of that pattern of life? A couple of things. From surveying the different teachings in Proverbs, a couple of things. First of all, the love of earthly comfort and pleasure. That's what's at the the root of it. The love of earthly comfort and pleasure. Verse 9 of chapter 6 as we saw a moment ago, goes on to say, when will you arise from your sleep? Matter of fact, verse 10, if you skip down to verse 10, it's probably mocking there what the sluggard says while he's lying in bed. It says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. In other words, yeah, I know, I've got work to do, but I'll get to that after a while. I'm just going to take a little nap. That's what the sluggard's saying. In chapter 26, verse 14, it makes fun of the sleeping sluggard again. It says, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. You know the routine. Alarm goes off in the morning. You reach over and hit the snooze button, and then you turn like a door on a hinge on your bed to your other side and go back to sleep. And so there's the sluggard flipping back and forth, staying in bed, staying asleep instead of embracing his responsibilities for the day. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 13, it says something that might be a little jarring to you when you first hear it. It says, Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you will have plenty of bread. I hear all of us saying at one time, Boy, I love sleep. That's a very common thought. But it's not loving sleep as the gift from God that it is, which it is, but it's loving sleep in the sense of making an idol out of sleep, of of using sleep as an escape from the responsibilities of life. Sleep and rest is a gift, but the sluggard loves it in a sinful way. Now, no one enjoys the effects of the fall on our work. No one enjoys the pain or the conflict or the frustration But it's a sin against God. It's a sin against our creator. It's a defacing of his image in us when we despise work and seek to avoid it when we're called to it by him. And what happens is that we actually become liars in the process. Look at chapter 26, verse 13. It says that the sluggard despises work so much that he lies and he makes up excuses for staying in bed and staying in the comforts of his home. He says, there's a lion in the streets. Now, if you or I said that as an excuse for not going into work, we would get laughed at. But actually, back in that day in Palestine, lions were a real danger. But they didn't hang out in the streets around your house. You know, In a sense, we're, we're meant to still laugh at the excuse because it wasn't realistic. And that's really what happens to sluggards. That's what happens when laziness becomes a characteristic of your life is that you start rationalizing your laziness. You start lying to yourself about why you're being lazy. You start lying to your boss. You start lying to your family. You start lying to your friends about what's really at the root of it. 
because you don't want to think of yourself as a sluggard. So you'll say, you know, I just don't feel well today. Or I'm not paid enough for this. You know, if I were paid more, then I would work harder. Or, you know, my coworkers goof off more than I do, so why should I work that hard? In, in verse 15 of chapter 26, it says that the sluggard, again, we're meant to laugh, but laugh sadly. Where it says the sluggard even despises the effort that it takes to enjoy his pleasures. He says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. He doesn't even want to work to get a snack. And how many times can I think of myself sitting in the living room with my remote watching a game on the television and thinking, you know, I don't even want to get up and go get some chips from the, from the, from the uh, kitchen. Can somebody give me some chips from the kitchen, please? In chapter 21, verse 17, it says, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. Now again, pleasure is a gift from God, the kind of pleasures he's talking about, but when you make it an idol, when you make it what you look for, that's your goal in life, it makes you poor in more ways than just your bank account. You see, the sluggard is foolish because the comfort and pleasures that he seeks after in life are fleeting and temporary. As soon as you consume them, they're gone. As soon as you watch that television program, it's, it's gone. As soon as you... you uh, cheer at that game, it's over and it's gone. As soon as your team wins the championship, it's gone. It doesn't last. And so Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4 says, the soul of the sluggard craves but gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Fulfill your calling from God. Pursue your joy and pleasure in the work that he has given to you, and you will find that satisfaction and joy that he promises to his children. Stop chasing after the pleasures of this world. Stop seeking your satisfaction in the things that turn to dust and blow away. Which brings us to the real heart issue of the sluggard, which is the, the love of self. In verse 16 of chapter 26, it says, The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. There it is. There's the core of it. It's pride, it's selfishness, it's self-centeredness. Who are the seven men that are trying to teach him or rebuking him, trying to tell him a different way? Well, the number seven is the number of perfection. So when you see it there, it means all of the people in authority over him, the people that are calling upon him to do the work that he's been called to do, the parents, the teachers, the professors, the employers, the authorities in his life that are calling upon him to work. See, this is the real issue. The reason that the sluggard doesn't work is that he thinks he's better than all of them. He thinks he's smarter, thinks he knows better, thinks his way is better. One commentator made this interesting comment, which fits with the idea that pride is really the issue. He says, laziness is a breach of love. Laziness is a breach of love. It's a failure to love your neighbor as yourself. It's a failure to treat others the way you want to be treated yourself, isn't it? Our family dog, this little dog named Dash, he knows the routine in our house after supper. He waits until we've all eaten our supper. He waits until everything's cleaned up. 
when we sit down to rest and relax, that's time for him to put on his act. He, he starts jumping up on our laps, and he doesn't just jump up on our lap, but he actually gets up in our face. And he, even if we ignore him too long, he'll start licking our nose. And we all know what that means. It's his supper time, time for him to eat. But if we're sitting there and we're watching a game or something on the television, the three of us, my wife, my son, and I are sitting there watching, Dash will go from one to one to one, you know, each of us, all around the room, and keep doing that. And what we'll do is we'll pretend that we don't notice. Do you know how hard it is to watch television when you've got a dog in your face like this and pretend that you don't notice? But the thing is, we all know the rule in our house. As soon as you recognize that the dog needs to be fed, it's your job to go do it. So as long as we keep ignoring him we, and pretending we don't notice, then we can still keep watching the television. Well, that's selfish. That's not treating others the way that you want to be treated yourself. That's not loving your neighbor as you love yourself. It's interesting how Paul talks about this issue, very much reflecting the teaching of Proverbs, but over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, listen to how he talks about, first of all, his own example, and then what he expects in the church of Christ. He says, beginning in verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Now, the background here is that Paul came in as a visiting preacher, church planter, apostle, he visited the church in Thessalonica, but, and while he was there, he's clearly asserted elsewhere that those who minister the word have the right to be uh, provided for. But he basically gave that up so that he could set a good example of working hard and not being idle in the midst of the church. And so he said, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any, year, any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You see, the bottom line is, he's saying, follow our example my biggest concern was not to be a burden to the church. And that's what love demands, is that we work hard to not be a burden to others, but so that we can bless others. And see, the sluggard, the lazy man, he's more than content to be a burden to others. He's more than content to allow the resources that should go to the truly needy people to go to him to make his life more comfortable and more pleasurable in terms of this world. And so Paul gives an instruction that's really tough love, isn't it? He says, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. Now back in biblical times, the connection between working and eating was very clear. If you were a farmer, you'd work all day long and the fruit of your labor was on your table for supper that night. And so not working and not eating, there was a clear connection there. In our industrialized, highly technological, highly complex economic system, there's a big separation between the work that we do and the actual food that's on our table, and we really lose that connection. But Paul would have us not lose it. That if you're not willing to work, then you should not eat. And that principle 
you know, the Bible is very sympathetic to the poor who are poor because of tragedy in their life or because of disability or because of oppression. Very sympathetic to those poor, but the one group of the poor that the Bible is not sympathetic to is those who are not willing to work. Paul says, do not let them eat. And that's tough love. That's not harshness, and that's not meanness, that's not unkindness, that's teaching. That's teaching the connection between diligence and reward and laziness and poverty. It's a loving thing to do for the sluggard, to rebuke him and to call him to walk in the Lord's ways. You see, the bottom line is we are to depend upon the Lord and to pursue the work that he has called us to do and trust in him to enable us to do it in this fallen world. You know, one group, I, there was a group of people that I look for in the Proverbs because, you know, as I entered into this study, I'm thinking, okay, lots to say to the sluggard, lots to say about laziness, but what about the other end of the spectrum? What about the workaholic? You know, many people would say that's a much bigger problem in this culture. I was really fascinated by the fact that the book of Proverbs doesn't say much directly to the workaholic. That so much of the teaching is to the sluggard. And I wrestled with that. I thought, well, why? And I think it's because the real issue there with the workaholic is really the issue of idolatry. It's really an issue of saying, I'm going to seek my meaning in work. I'm going to seek my purpose in my work. I'm going to seek my status in my work. And really what the workaholic does is he overcomes the natural laziness that we all as sinners have. He overcomes that natural laziness, that, that sluggardliness, whatever you want to call it. He overcomes it by pride. He says, okay, even though I hate work, I despise work, I don't want to work, I'm actually going to make myself do it, I'm going to be highly disciplined, and I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to give myself to work in order to be self-sufficient, in order to glorify myself, in order to not need anyone, even God himself. That's what the workaholic does. And so it's really an issue of idolatry. But the bottom line is that we're all sluggards and we're all workaholics one end of the spectrum or the other, somewhere along on the spectrum, we're all guilty. We're all lazy by nature. We all despise the work that God has called us to do by nature. And we're all prideful at the core. But work is redeemed in Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. He didn't just redeem our souls. He didn't just open the gates of heaven to us. He actually redeemed our calling to work. You know, Satan introduced rebellion into the world, and Adam and Eve embraced it and brought the curse upon the creation. But 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And an important work of the devil is what he has done to work itself. And so what Christ came to do was to redeem work, to show us again the joy of imitating our Creator and what it means to work for the glory of God, that we can find the joy and satisfaction that was intended from the very beginning. You see, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, added to his divine nature a fully human nature. He remained fully God, but became fully human. And he came to work in our midst. And he worked faithfully. He worked hard. He worked with perfection and excellence. I've often asked people, if you were in the first century to stumble into a carpenter shop in Nazareth while Jesus was living at home with his father, 
would you buy a table that was made by Jesus Christ? Of course you would. You would know that he worked to the absolute best of his ability in the gifting that the Father gave to him. He worked perfectly, and he knew the joy of obedience and work. The apostles came to him once when he was tired and hungry and thirsty because of his diligent work in ministry. And they came to him, and they expected him to be hungry, and he said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He knew the satisfaction of working for the Lord's glory. But yet that perfect worker who deserved all the rewards for his work actually went to the cross and died to save sluggards and workaholics like you and me. He took the penalty that our laziness deserves. He took the penalty that our pride and self-exaltation deserves. And those who put their faith in him as our risen Savior receive a right relationship with God. We are forgiven. Our laziness and our pride is all forgiven if we put our faith in him. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by faith in his work, his perfect work, not only his works of obedience during his lifetime, but more importantly, his work of sacrificial atonement on the cross where he died to shed his blood for our sins. We are God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. We are forgiven. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see our laziness, our shoddy work record, our selfishness, our pride. That's not what he sees. He sees the perfect work record of Jesus Christ. And we're accepted and belong to him on that basis. So you know what that means? That means that we're free from this dog-eat-dog merit system that is the world. We don't have to keep measuring ourselves by other people, by other employees, by other bosses. We don't have to measure ourselves by where we are in the corporate ladder or where we are in the world's estimation of things. We're free from that. God accepts us completely because of what Jesus did for us. You know what that means? It means we're free to play in God's sandbox. We're free. We're his children. Work is a gift to us. We don't do it to earn his favor. We do it because he has favored us. We're so thankful. And he's opened our eyes to see the joy and satisfaction of doing work like him. You know what? Even the the, the effects of the curse, the toil, the sweat, the thorns, the thistles, the pain, the suffering, the frustration, even those things have been redeemed through the cross so that now... Instead of just frustrating us, now they become tools of our sanctification. They become means by which God teaches us patience and faith. It makes us more like him. It opens our eyes more and more to the glory of working for his glory. Let me conclude by reading from Colossians 3, beginning in verse 22, because here is the attitude of the redeemed sinner. This is Paul's instruction to slaves, but we've always applied it to workers under employers. He says, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, in other words, when they're, only when their eyes are on you, but as, or as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving 
the Lord Christ. I don't care who your boss is. I don't care how grumpy he is. I don't know how, care how unreasonable he is. That's just part of, that's just a tool of God's sanctification in your life. Your real boss is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one you work for, and you're not doing it to earn his favor. You're doing it to thank him for all that he's done for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of work. Father, we do lament how much we have corrupted such a good gift. But Lord, I pray that as your word continues to work in our minds and our hearts, I pray, Lord, that you would give us your perspective, first of all, on our sin, that we might see it for as hideous as it is, but also see it forgiven in Christ. And may we also see the joy and the satisfaction that comes from doing our labor, whatever that labor might be, for the glory of Christ and in great thankfulness for all that he's done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.